This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for setting aside some time for us today. My name is Rasa Fumagali. I am your host for today's podcast. And joining us today are Anne Sandstrom and Anne-Marie Pantazis. Anne Sandstrom provides consultative services regarding settlements involving Medicare set-asides and negotiation strategies related to future medical care. She is a Medicare set-aside certified consultant, a certified workers' compensation professional, and a life care planner. She is also registered with the Social Security Administration as a non-attorney representative for Social Security Disability Claimants. Anne-Marie Pantazis is a board-certified workers' compensation specialist and mediator with the Wilder Pantazis Law Group in Charlotte, North Carolina. She earned her BA from William & Mary in 1994 and her JD from Wake Forest in 1999. She currently serves as co-chair of the North Carolina State Bar Workers' Compensation Specialization Committee, which drafts and grades the specialization exam. She also currently serves on the Executive Committee of the Workplace Injury Law and Advocacy Group, which is a nationwide organization of workers' compensation advocates. So welcome, Anne and Anne-Marie. So Today, we are going to be talking about social security disability applications, the process, and the settlement implications. So now we all know that CMS is willing to review workers' comp MSA proposals when the settlement meets CMS's internal workload review threshold. The first voluntary review threshold involves settlements with a current Medicare beneficiary that exceed $25,000. The second review threshold though, involves settlements that exceed $250,000 and involve individuals with a reasonable expectation of Medicare enrollment within 30 months of the settlement date. So you can have reasonable expectations by virtue of age, for example, when somebody is 62 and a half or reasonable expectation has also been defined by CMS as people that have applied for social security disability benefits, claimants that have been denied these benefits but anticipate appealing that decision, and claimants that are in the process of appealing and or refiling for these benefits. So let's start out by talking about how this social security disability benefit application process works. Anne, can you tell us a little bit about, first off, how you actually get involved with this and how the process works. Like how does somebody even qualify for social security disability benefits? Thank you, Rasa. Uh, Generally speaking, very generally speaking, it's important to understand from the beginning that the SSA definition of disability is internal to the Social Security Administration. And it's not consistent with definitions of disability that might be applicable in your jurisdiction with workers' compensation or other systems such as short-term disability programs, uh, what what a physician might feel the term disabled means. And so you're dealing with a very, very specific set of criteria and procedures that uh, 
are real specific to Social Security and nothing else. So it starts with whether or not the claimant is fully insured. They need to meet Social Social Security criteria, not only on an administrative basis, but on a medical basis. So the first thing Social Security is going to look at is, is is this claimant fully insured to qualify for SSDI? Generally speaking, this means they have had to have worked long enough earned enough income and paid enough into the FICA system to qualify and earn enough uh, credits or quarters. If you're 31 years or older, uh, you have to have at least 20 credits, which roughly equates to working and paying into the system for five of the last 10 years. So uh, to start this process, especially if if an attorney's uh, working with this applicant from a work comp perspective, learning that person's date last insured would give them insight into their eligibility status. And the applicants can learn that by contacting Social Security directly. Um, A claimant must also prove that they have a medically severe condition that has lasted or expected to last at least 12 months that limits their ability to do basic work-related activities or is expected to result in death. Typically, what the uh, claimant feels is medically severe uh, condition, or even their doctors in the work comp system might feel is a medically severe condition, might not meet the Social Security cri- uh, criteria for what that is. The so, med- Anne, sure. If I can just ask, you know, you did mention that when you have a claimant who's 30 years and older, it, you know, typically you're going to be looking for 20 credits to be considered insured. Could you actually be somebody who started working at 21, worked a few years, and then had a devastating you know, injury or illness occur and qualify or have enough credits to be insured? Yes, it's a great question. The rules are different for people under the age of 31, but yes, that is possible. They have different uh, earning criteria. Okay. Thank you. And I'm sorry, I know you were starting to explain um, what the standard is for how do you define disability when it comes to the social security application process? Uh, there, yes. So the medically uh, severe conditions need to be listed. Uh, the medical impairments also must prevent the claimant from their ability to perform work that they previously did. So uh, Social security goes back typically five to 15 years. So any it, past work that they've done in that past 10 to 15 years, can they go back and do that type of work again? A lot of crossover workers comp, uh, social security cases, that piece is is often easier to identify. Uh, but you've got doctors that say that they, you know, especially if someone's been on the job for many years, they can't go back to that job and that's clear. But the final piece is, can d- does their medical impairments preclude them from adjusting to performing other work because of the medical condition. And this is the piece that's murky and difficult for people to understand because it is a very specific social security criteria as to what other work is and whether or not they have transferable skills to go into any other work. So in your experience, like how do most people get the ball rolling? Do people just, I mean, assuming that you might have somebody who is not that sophisticated. I mean, do most of the people that you've come into contact with, do they initiate this process on their own through an online application or do they get somebody to take them to the administration office? How how does that part work? Sure. A lot of people do apply on their own. Uh, uh, There's kind of a trend in the industry where an attorney will know on a social security case that, or excuse me, on a worker's compensation case that this person might uh, qualify for social security or the carrier often 
requires them to apply for social security disability. So if that's the case, some people will say, you know, you go ahead and apply on your own, come back when you get denied because a great majority of the cases are denied right out of the gate by social security. And um, so the patient will be told to go apply and come back to the attorney when the case has been denied. They can apply online. Now with COVID, a lot of the local offices are closed. So they are trying to gear people to apply online. If an attorney is assisting a person and that attorney wants to get paid directly by social security for their fee, they're required to do their applications online. So that would get the ball rolling as, a, as an initial application online with the social Thank security. You. So Anne-Marie, now I know that you are a practicing attorney and I'm curious, do you help the people that come to you with workers' comp injuries? Do you help them apply for these social security disability benefits or how, how do you get involved in this process? That's a great question. And <clears throat> thank you for identifying this very interesting interplay with workers' comp. So the short answer is I used to. Um, back when I would say I was maybe, I've been practicing 20 plus years. So I would say about year 10 of practicing workers' comp, we were getting a lot of people who could qualify for social security in our workers' comp um, inventory. And instead of referring those cases out, I decided to add social security to our practice since it was a complementary type of um, situation. And I did those cases for about five years. And I was really glad that I did them because I learned a lot about how workers comp and social security interact, which I think was very valuable, not only for me, but to give that um, resource to my clients. So when I would have um, somebody either in my workers comp caseload, or we would advertise it just in general for the public to come in and um, we would help them with their applications. We always did defer on the first application to the claimant themselves. So we would say, okay, go ahead and fill it out online if you can, or you can call social security, make an appointment over the phone. Uh, or that was before COVID, you could make an appointment and go to the social security office, your local office, and they would help fill out the application. And as Anne indicated, the application is pretty onerous. You have to have a lot of information. You have to have your work history, all of your medical providers, their addresses, their phone numbers. So it is a bit much unless you already have that information um, in your file, like if we had their uh, workers comp case, we would have that information. We usually have the folks fill it out on their own. So we would get involved in the request for reconsideration. So I always tell people you're going to get denied at least once, probably twice. And on the third time, if you can stick with it and get before an administrative law judge, your chances vastly improve of getting on social security disability. But in Charlotte, where I practice, um, there was a backlog in these these cases take forever. It was about 18 months on a good timeline from start to finish between starting your application and finishing it, 24 months more likely. So when people come to me for social security from the general public who did not have a companion workers comp case, I said, this is not unemployment. This is not a quick remedy. This is really, if you can never work again, this is your best option. For my comp clients, I try to identify it rather early on because you can only get back pay going back one year prior to your application date. So if you wait too long, you may miss out on um, receiving that back pay. But for workers comp too, I wanted to know if I settled their workers comp case, they would have another stream of income that could take the place of a settled workers comp stream of income. So that's when I became very interested in the coordination of those benefits 
Um, and we can talk about that later on in the podcast, the logistics of coordinating a workers' compensation settlement with a social security award. Yeah, so, well, thank you for, for sharing that insight. So, Anne, when you would go to these administrative hearings, you know, what, what are they like? I mean, is it similar to, you know, for example, a workers' comp hearing? I'm assuming there's a judge. I mean, is, are, is there a testimony? How does this work? Are there, you know, other witnesses? Yeah, there is. through this? Sure, it's a great question. There is there there is a judge. It is it does not work exactly like a workers' compensation hearing. It's a little bit more casual in in that sense. There typically are no other witnesses other than a vocational evaluator that is hired by the Social Security Administration and is on their list of approved evaluators. And so they they look at the file beforehand. The judge looks at the file beforehand. Um, The reps are uh, required to get all their information into the judge X amount of time before the hearing. Um, Anything that you want to have considered uh, often... um, Position statements are done, pre-hearing memos are done before, so the judge can get an idea of where you're going with it. Um, The the interesting thing about Social Security is your judge could be in another state. They've gone to video hearings even before COVID, and so it's not that you necessarily get a local judge anymore, that you might know the judge. They may know how, you know, you might learn how they operate. You can get assigned a judge uh, on a video hearing from all over the place if your your client can decline a video hearing if they like. But the process is very different internally, too. You'll get a chance to ask questions of the vocational examiner. Um, Sometimes there'll be a medical examiner that they may have there, but again, that uh, consultative examination is hired by the social security company. So what what the reps would be providing is their own internal information in written form, typically, that they've received. And then the applicant has a chance to also be questioned by the judge, and you can then ask questions of your client to kind of rehabilitate how the testimony went down with the judge. So, you know, in workers' comp cases, you know, used to be that you would know which arbitrators were particularly sympathetic to the injury victim. You know, you would know that these guys are going to find, even in a questionable case, they're going to rule for Mm -hmm. the petitioner. Do you think there's a bias with the ALJs? And I'm just curious, you know, where they're more sympathetic to people or are they a bit more skeptical? And I know this is not on the list of proposed questions. Now I'm really just curious (laughs) to see what you guys think. Yeah, well, there is a there is a um, a website where you can actually look up the judges' approval ratings. Oh, from all over. So, so we do. We all have resources in this industry. I think, like a lot of industries, where we all work together to to share information as well. But there there is a site which will tell you for each year uh, each hearing office and the judges what their statistics are. So that you do get really, you do get that really heads helpful. up. Yeah. And I will say, Rasa, when I was representing folks before ALJs, I always liked representing my workers' comp clients the best because they got hurt working. And there are a mm-hmm. lot of folks who apply for Social Security who haven't worked in a very long time. So I almost felt that they had a benefit of the doubt because the way they got hurt was while they were working. Exactly. So which, yeah. yeah, which definitely makes sense. So, all right. So how long does it take after you participate in the hearing? to actually get a decision. And if you are unhappy with the decision, is there another level that you can appeal this? Either of you guys. You can take that one, Anne. <laughs> uh, 
it, different jurisdictions have a different process. Uh, there, there was a, a process called reconsideration in some jurisdictions. So that's like the uh, two initial levels of appeal that are written and on paper within the local office. And then you'll, you'll have your uh, hearing with the judge. And then that decision, we had a decision that took almost a year to come in, but it typically six months. Mm -hmm. If you don't like that, you have 60 days to appeal. And you're looking at it as Anne-Marie suggested 18 months, two years, sometimes to get these decisions. And so this is not a quick fix. And then you have a final level of appeal at the federal level, if you don't like what the administrative law judge says. And that federal appeal, and even the, oh, excuse me, the appeals council after the administrative law judge. And that isn't just if you like, you don't like the decision, that is, that has to be shown a mistake, um, uh, you know, emissions, errors, things like that. So that is a very specific set of criteria before the appeals council will even look at it. Yeah. So, so it, it does sound as if this is not a quick, not a quick solution to getting some benefits. But so in a workers' comp case, for example, um, petitioners, attorneys, they get paid a contingency fee. How do representatives or attorneys practicing in this area or representing people that are applying for social security disability benefits, how do you guys get paid? I mean, it sounds as if you would put a ton of time into these, especially with having to provide documentation prior to a hearing, you know, attending the hearing and taking all these other steps. Is it a contingency fee? Yes. <laughs> it, 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 it's a tremendous her head on the work. zoom kind of sadly okay so it's, it's a con percentage of the back benefit or of how does that work there is a percentage of the back benefit as, as well um social security limits um the fee is six thousand dollars you can get a percentage of the back you can also do fee uh, fee petitions so so there is a there is a recourse if you do spend a tremendous amount of time on the case you can um, have a fee petition authorized by the social security administration where you can get a percentage of the back benefits some of these back benefit payments are pretty substantial to these uh, applicants since these cases can drag on for so long before a final decision is made. And so if they are found eligible for social security disability, uh, disability benefits, that can go back to the date of disability, um, depending on a few other things. But so you, you could have a substantial uh, contingency fee if you were to get your fee of petition approved. And, and I will say, Rasa, I'm sorry to interrupt. I would always tell my clients, it's 25% of back pay capped at $6,000. And then I get charged, I think, $93 administrative right. fee. So the most I was ever making as an attorney for a sometimes years-long process was a maximum $5,900, um, which is great for the client. But those were even few and far between because what ALJ started doing was amending onset dates. So you only get back, mm -hmm. back to your onset date. And sometimes it's a negotiation with the ALJ where they'll say, okay, we'll approve you if you move up your onset date to say your 55th birthday or some other benchmark that Social Security has, which is great for the client because they get guaranteed Social Security and Medicare pay, you know, benefits, but it's really bad for the attorney who spent two years and their fee is $1,000 or $2,000. So I find that the folks that do these claims successfully are the ones who do it in volume and have a system set up. We would do a pre-hearing brief and get all the medical records and really, really treat a workers or a social security claim like we treated our workers comp claims and work it up. And I hate to say this, but I found that if you did all of that work, you just weren't 
your effective rate was so low as to not make the practice profitable unless you did it in volume. So that's why I hate to say it, I stopped doing it, but having done it, I think made me a better workers' comp attorney. Well, and I think that by sort of understanding the interplay between the social security disability process with workers' comp, with Medicare secondary payer issues, like knowing all these different parts, Mm -hmm. really is a great way to be somebody who can effectively counsel or guide people in their negotiations and their strategic discussions. So so one of the things that I am often um, asked by various attorneys, you know, there's um, a bit of confusion about social security disability benefits and supplemental security mm-hmm. income benefits. So Anne-Marie, would you be able to, you know, just give us an overview of how they're similar, how they're different, if you can actually be on Medicare and getting SSI and SSD or Cluison? The whole alphabet soup that is social security. <laughs> SSD um, is what we usually call social security disability, which requires having earned enough credits to pay into the system to be able to Um, to get out of the system like you kind of paid in, and that's through your FICA taxes. Supplemental security income or SSI is, how I explain it to my clients is it's welfare. It's for um, folks who are disabled who have limited resources. So can you apply, can you apply and qualify for both? Yes, but your social security disability payment is going to count as income, and there are income requirements. I think it's, you can't have more than two or $3,000 in assets, uh, no, $2,000 for a single person, $3,000 for a married person, and then there are monthly income um, limits. So my workers' comp clients would never qualify for SSI be- if they're receiving TTD. So it's not something that comes up in the workers' comp context as much as that may come up in just a general social security practice that if you have maybe a disabled um, 20-year-old who never paid into the system, or if you have um, uh, an adolescent who becomes an adult, they may be able to get SSI, or adolescents through their parents can get SSI. So it's it's basically an income-based program for disabled folks. and Anne probably knows more about the criteria than I do because she sees it probably more than I do in my practice. But so with SSI comes Medicaid, not necessarily Medicare comes Medicaid, which is a state-based program versus a federal program. Thank you, Anne Marie. And do you have anything you want to add in terms of you know the differences between the two or how they might impact how you're you know consulting with people in terms of strategic considerations? Sure. I do have two things to say about one thing I think it's important with the SSI is is it does happen, Medicaid, Medi-Cal situations, special needs trust. You might want to consider if that's a a situation for your settlement uh, that will help preserve some of those benefits. The other thing that I think is important for people to understand is that with Social Security claims, you can throw in any number of disabilities and impairments to combine together to meet the social security criteria. They may, that may include things that aren't related to the workers' comp claim. So it's important to complement the two claims or at least understand how the two claims might impact each other, especially a disability claim that you're, you're claiming your client is permanently totally disabled, but now you have the social security, you know, on the basis alone of their work comp injury, but now you have a social security claim 
that's saying, here's why this client's really permanently and totally disabled. It's because they have COPD and all these other things that are maybe related to the work comp claim. So just having an understanding of how those, especially if it's not within the same office, if their social security claims being handled by a different office, just maybe understanding how those things might impact your settlement, might impact um, settlement language and things like that, and, and what might be put onto an, a Medicare set aside to make sure that the whole kitchen sink doesn't get thrown into that language if if other things are claimed as part of the social security claim. Absolutely. You know, that I that attention to detail is critical because you just can't assume that everything in that social security award belongs in the MSA or is part of the workers' comp case. So being mindful of that and understanding the differences is huge, I think. So all right. We talk, you know, we've been talking about social security disability. We've been talking about workers' comp. I believe, Anne, early on in our discussion, you mentioned that sometimes you have adjusters saying, apply for social security disability benefits, Mr. or Mrs. Uh, injured victim. So how, like, how does that come about and what is the rationale? And then I'm going to ask Anne-Marie about the offset, which she had mentioned before. So why don't we start with you, Anne, with the adjusters who are going to tell your people, or they're going to say, please apply for benefits for this person. Sure. How does that come up? Some internal policies with companies and some jurisdictional um, language requires the applicants to apply for all potential benefits to which they may be entitled. So, and, and also depending on the offset state, whether it's reverse offset or a regular offset state, it, it can impact the way the claim is calculated and, and the benefits paid out by the carrier. So there are some states where typically it's just basically in some insurance companies where there is just a policy once they get, they catch wind that it's going to perhaps be a permanent disability case or someone's been off work for quite a while. They want to see where that's going to go with social security and they request that the applicant apply. Yeah. So, so thank you for that. Anne-Marie, how, how do you see these sort of like reverse offsets or these different types of offsets? And what are things that you should consider when you're counseling a workers' comp claimant? Very good question. So uh, offsets, everyone wants to be the last payor. Everyone wants to have somebody else pay first and social <laughs> security included in that analysis. Um, going back real quick before I talk about the logistics of the offsets, long-term disability adjusters will also ask claimants to file for social security disability because a lot of long-term disability policies have a two-year what's called own occupation limit and then it turns to an any occupation limit, meaning we'll pay LTD for two or three years if you're disabled under your own occupation, but then it will switch to an any occupation uh, after 24 to 36 months, which is basically the social security standard. So a lot of LTD carriers like Unum will hire a social security attorney to um, bring that claim on behalf of the LTD claimant in order to get that offset because not only does the, the definition of disability under the policy change, but the LTD carrier gets a credit for what social security pays. So they're a big driver of these claims too. Um, that we see. But as far as workers' comp offsets, there's two types of states. There's offset states and reverse offset states. Um, offset states like North Carolina, workers' comp does not reduce by your Social Security disability benefit. However, Social Security will reduce by your weekly workers' comp benefit or your TTD, your temporary total disability. In a reverse offset state, uh, and I don't have as much 
familiarity with those, but it's my understanding, I think Montana is one of them, where uh, workers' comp gets an offset for your social security disability. So in my state, in North Carolina, um, what we do is we have to determine if someone is on TTD and, and they either get on SSD um, during the course of the claim, Social Security has to know about that weekly workers' comp benefit because they do get to subtract that benefit from the monthly payment to the workers' comp claimant. This is the tricky part. That offset is taxable, and my client will get a 1099 for the offset that they never see. So they cannot wrap their heads around, wait a minute, I'm getting taxed on money I never got, and that's the truth. So. It's not a dollar for dollar reduction. I won't go too much into the calculation, but just very quickly, it's 80% and we'll have to do this alphabet soup again, 80% of your ACE, which is your average current earnings, which is a computation method that social security uses to compute what your average current earnings are over a period of time. There's the different ways of doing it, but on the on the award letter that you get from social security, just say you go through the process and you win, the ALJ writes an opinion, that opinion then goes to a payment center. The payment center then takes all the information about your claim, including what you're getting in workers comp and does your award letter. And your award letter will come maybe 30 days after your, I'm sorry, your payment letter will come about 30 days after your award letter. And in the payment letter, it outlines what the offset is. And it will say 80% of your ACE is X, just say it's $3,000 or 80% of your average current earnings minus your monthly social security, or I'm sorry, your monthly workers comp. They translate weekly checks into monthly amounts. So 80% of your ACE minus your monthly workers comp equals what social security will pay you subject to your primary insurance amount or your PIA, which is the max you can get under social security. 80% of your ACE minus TTD equals your social security payment subject to your max. And so as your weekly workers comp payments go down, just say you settle and you put proration language in your settlement, that social security check will go up. Same thing as if you get on social security and I start taking 25% as an attorney's fee on your TTD, because your TTD is now 25% less, your social security should go up by 25%. So that's the interplay. So what do you do when you have somebody who's receiving social security disability benefits and you are gonna lump out their workers' comp mm -hmm. case? You're gonna have a certain amount of dollars for disputed TTD, for mm -hmm. indemnity benefits, Plus, let's throw in a CMS-approved determination, number two. Let, let's just throw it in there. <laughs> throw so, it all in there. What would you do in terms of trying to maximize the amount that your person is free and clear? Great. In terms of settlement language. So we have to take out the MSA and that's separate funds. And those funds have to be paid separately um, from the Social Security Award or from the... Um, clincher or we call it a clincher in North Carolina. The workers so company. there's no sort of claim that social security can put out there saying that those future medical funds really are compensated. No, no. So there's this thing called the POMS, the procedurals operation manual that social security points out. And in the POMS, it has all the things that you can and cannot put in these offsets or you can take out of these offsets. And the POMS say that you can subtract future medicals, but you have to line them out. You can't, they have to be delineated in the settlement document. So an MSA would be delineated in the settlement document. So what we're doing is prorating indemnity over the course of somebody's lifetime. 
Um, there's proration language you can put in these settlement documents and it's a legal fiction. You say, okay, the, the allegation is the claimant is totally disabled over their um, life expectancy. We use our North Carolina general statute life expectancy, but you can use the CMS life expectancy or the social security life expectancy. And you do the proration language. And if you do it correctly, social security will say, okay, it's as if you're getting a reduced amount every month for the rest of your life to take into account this lump sum. You then have to tell social security once that is approved that you have done this. And there's a form, it's called an SSA.546. So social security administration form-546 is a form that's very easy to fill out and you send it into social security and you report your lump sum settlement when it's approved. You then hope that the payment center understands how to do this uh, takes the offset off. And what should happen is your social security benefits should increase once that lump sum settlement has been paid out and approved. But you have to do it correctly the first time. It's very, very, very hard. You don't do it the first time to amend the documents to do it later. And you can't, well, I should say, you can't amend the documents. You have to redo the whole process in order to do it over again. The um, Social Security Administration does not accept amendments or addendums to settlement agreements to add the proration language. So okay. make sure you do it right the first time. That is very good to know. So um, we're going to be wrapping up soon, but I do have one last question. Mm -hmm. So person is awarded Social Security Disability Benefits yet they do not get Medicare coverage for a while after. Mm -hmm. Can either of you sort of walk us through at what point does a person actually get to sign up and get the Medicare coverage under A or B after they've been awarded Social Security Disability Benefits? I think Anne looks like she might be the person <laughs> to answer this one based on Anne Marie's Zoom gesture. So there is a uh, five month waiting period after approval of benefits. So technically it's 25 or 29 months is, is how we, a lot of people look at it. So 29, 20, excuse me, 29 months um, is a waiting period. So that does not happen anytime soon either. Um, and that's really so, important for people to understand. And that reasonable expectation language that is in the workers' comp reference guide about when Medicare is willing to review proposed settlements over $250,000, it says mm -hmm. 30 months. So presumably the payment begins in the 30th month. Yes, generally speaking, yeah. So, yep. well, ladies, this has been extremely informative. And Anne and Anne-Marie, thank you so much for setting aside some time to talk to us. And thank you to our audience for setting aside some time to listen to our MSPN broadcast podcast, excuse me. Please join us for our next podcast on settlement strategies. Take care.